I'm going to read Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints. You can be seated. Father, before we begin, Lord, I ask that you would do that which only you can do, Lord. Illuminate your word to our hearts. Lord, cause it to be life. Father, that we would magnify your name and glory in your grace and your mercy. Thank you for giving us your word, Lord. Thank you for your spirit and thank you for your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So credentials are important. If someone were to hand you a book, to know that what the book contains, you could actually open the front cover or look on the back, and there are going to be credentials of the author there. And they're listed. Basically, the author is, has given his credentials, what are important for you to know about him, at least concerning that topic. And you can look at his credentials and say, this is going to be solid. Or, this guy is a heretic and I don't want anything to do with it. But credentials are important. This is not a book, though. This is a letter that was written by a man to a church that had been established for, we don't really know, but it could have been established for up to 20 years before they actually got this letter. The church in Rome was, um, we're not really sure how it came about, but it could have come about um, from pilgrims on the day of Pentecost going to Jerusalem and then heading back to um, Rome afterwards. In Acts 2.10, that actually talks about Romans coming down. Or it could have been the synagogue of the freedmen who scuffled with um, Stephen. If you guys remember that in, from the book of Acts, that was a synagogue from Rome as well. And they could have taken the Christian faith back to Rome. One thing that we do know is that by the late 40s, AD 40s, there was such a significant Roman or a Christian presence within the Jewish synagogues that it caused a major uproar within Rome to the point that the Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome, which led to Paul meeting Aquila and Prisca in Corinth, Acts 18, 1 and 2. We also know that by the time Paul wrote this letter, Aquila and Prisca had moved back to Rome and had a church meeting in their home, Romans 16, 3 through 5. So Paul was reaching out to this church through this letter. His desire was to influence them and for them to know what he was about. We're going to focus on verses 1 and 2, which contain within them the credentials that Paul listed to the saints in Rome. There are three of them. And they're given in such a way that they bolster or support each other. I liken them to a Paul sandwich. Before receiving this letter 
the leaders of Rome may have known about Paul, for there was a lot to be known, or there was a lot to know about Paul. Twenty years earlier, a man named Ananias knew something about Paul. Acts 9, beginning in verse 13, says this. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Credentials are important. If you worked at IBM and someone handed you a letter, an operating um, procedure um, letter from the vice president, you would actually take it serious. Unless you looked at the letter and you realized that the vice president of operations actually was from McDonald's and not IBM. At that point, you wouldn't take it serious anymore. Not that the man didn't have power to enact changes like that. He just didn't have power within your organization. Paul understood that. See, Paul was born a freeborn citizen uh, within a prominent city of Roman Empire. His family must have been wealthy or at least well-connected because he received an outstanding education. He was a disciple of the Jewish scholar and leader, Gamaliel. When he addressed the crowd in Acts 22, these were the credentials that he led with. Acts 22, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard he was addressing them in Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Sicily, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner um, of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are today. He knew at that point he was addressing outsiders to the family of God. But at the same time, he wanted to give them, he wanted to give um, or influence them and give credence to what he was saying. So that's why he lived with those uh, credentials. However, in this letter, he's writing to the church. So he decided to list a different set of credentials. One thing I found out a long time ago is that all sandwiches are not created equal. They've got the same components, two slices of bread, and some of them are really thin and, you know, kind of like nothing there. But if you know anything about Tracy's cooking, when she makes a sandwich, that bread had better be thick and dense because she packs it so much with so much stuff that if you put Wonder Bread on there, it's not going to stay together. The same can be said about this Paul sandwich. By the time that um, the letter had been, that Paul wrote had been completed, he had at least two missionary journeys under his belt, spreading the gospel to the edges of the Roman Empire. But the credential that Paul leads with is not evangelist or missionary. He leads with servant. This is the first slice of bread in the Paul sandwich. Servant of Jesus Christ. In the original Greek, Paulos doulos Christu. This is his proof that whatever else he was, he was part of the family of God. This was the bedrock of all that he was as a person and what supported and influenced any position that he had within the family. This was defining for Paul. And it was what shaped his ministry and life. Everything was built on this. Take this one thing away and nothing else that would come behind it would matter. The word servant, as rendered in the ESV, which I just read from, and the King James, in the original Greek is doulos. It's also been translated as bond servant in the New American Standard Version, but the most accurate rendering of this word is found in the New Living Translation, that of slave. 
Paul and the first century believers who had come to be known as Christians understood that they'd been bought at a great price and they weren't free agents. John MacArthur, in his book entitled Slave, wrote this about the early Christians. Following Jesus Christ was the sum of their entire existence. At the moment when life itself was on the line, nothing else mattered besides identifying themselves with him. For these faithful believers, the name Christian was much more than just a general religious designation. It defined everything about them, including how they viewed both themselves and the world around them. The label underscored their love for a crucified Messiah, along with their willingness to follow him no matter the cost. It told of the wholesale transformation God had produced in their hearts and witnessed to the fact that they had been made completely new in him. They had died to their old way of life, having been born again in the new family of God. Christian was not a simply a title, but an entirely new way of thinking, one that had serious implications for how they lived and ultimately how they died. Every author of an epistle in the New Testament begins at least one of their letters by listing their um, title as doulos. We find the title slave very offending. They didn't. We shouldn't either. Jesus made it clear that all people are slaves. We just fail to recognize it. John 8, beginning in verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offsprings of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. To this slavery isn't to another person or to a state. Later in this Paul, or later in this letter, Paul makes this clear. He says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things that you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that gets, uh, you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Part of the regeneration process is having a heart to awaken to the reality of our sin against God. And no matter where you stand on federalism, um, the fact that, we are, or that we're condemned by the imputed guilt of Adam, the first time that you sin, practically, you sold yourself into slavery from which you could not purchase yourself out of. You killed yourself, and you, comp you were completely helpless to do anything about it, even if you desired to. But we didn't. The truth is that we loved our slavery to sin, no matter, what the, fact that, no matter the fact that the wages of sin are death. But because of regeneration, we know that redemption is possible, but only through the payment of our sin debt. And only the death of a sinless man can purchase us from our self-deposed slavery. We sold ourselves into slavery, but Christ purchased us with his own blood. Where we once had a cruel taskmaster in sin, we now have righteousness as our master. As amazing as this truth is, we bristle under the perceived weight and degradation of the title slave. Our flesh hates the idea that we have no choice in the matter, which is why bondservant is much more appealing, like we have a choice. But Paul would have none of this, and he was quick to admonish the believers in Rome to be obedient slaves to their new master. He wrote, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, 
you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. So now we come to the second part of the Paul sandwich, the filling. And understand why the first credential was so dense and important. The second credential that he lists is apostle. An apostleship comes with authority. And like all authority, in the wrong hands, abuses and manipulations um, ensue. This is why Paul listed apostleship after slave of Christ. Because there were men that were claiming this title and were wrongly influencing Christians, leading them astray. Paul had seen this firsthand, or had seen firsthand a destruction that happened at the hands of these men who wanted the, the high office of apostle, but weren't even Christians. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 12. He says, what am I doing? I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that they're, of their both submission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. These super-apostles, as Paul called them, flaunted their credentials to gain access to the church. They led with apostle to garner authority and then gave credentials like, I'm a Hebrew, I'm the offspring of Abraham, and then even claiming to be servants of Christ. It's this last thing that Paul takes exception to and uses to prove that they were not apostles. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Let me pause there. The word that Paul uses for servants of Christ there is diakonos and not doulos. Diakonos is a root word from which we get the word deacon, but the literal translation here is that of a waiter or an administrator, not the personal property of slave, not the intimate relationship or the true relationship that a true Christian has with their Savior. These men were at best hirelings. Paul then cast, contrasts what true apostleship looked like compared to the high office that these men were holding themselves to. He says, I speak as if I'm insane. I more so for, um, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, 
dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these things, um, except, apart from these external things, there is also the daily pressure um, of me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Paul knew that to be anything in Christ, first he had to be purchased by him. Before anything else, he had to be a slave to him. And he also knew that since it was the Father's will to crush his own son to prove his obedience, that he would bring, and bring glory to himself, he would certainly do no less for the children that were purchased through the son's obedience. And any attempt to, to prove otherwise would be false. Which brings us to the third chunk of Paul's sandwich, the remaining slice of the bread. It's no less dense and robust and full as the first one, for he tells us that he had been set apart for the gospel of God. In his letter to the Galatian church, he begins in similar fashion. Only this time he states that his apostleship wasn't from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Fourteen verses later, Paul reveals that God did not choose him that day on the road to Damascus um, to be his apostle. Um, that choice had been made a long time before then. He says, Galatians 1.14, But when he who set me apart before I was born and called me to his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So why was being set apart so important? Why even more so? Why is it important to know that he was set apart long before his birth? Well, the reason for that is uh, much of where the modern evangelism goes off the rails. It's the theological term called ordo salutis, or the order of salvation. Who's responsible for the salvation of men? Do men repent, then are saved, which would make their salvation partly due to their actions? And it's called synergistic. Or does God call a man, elect him from eternity past, regenerate his heart at this, a specific point in time, thus allowing this man to recognize the sin against the holy God and his need for a savior, which then produces repentance, faith, and confession? Paul wasn't confused about what order this happened or who was responsible for the salvation of men. He understood that every aspect of his life, from where he was born to who he was born to to where he lived, through his earlier training under Gamaliel, the zeal for the, um, the word that he had, even his personality traits, even his physical appearance, these were all at the hands of God. Even his persecution of the church earlier was part of the setting apart process that would make him the slave and apostle that he was. So being, but being set apart wasn't the important part of this credential. The important part was what he was set apart to the gospel of God. So why was Paul so dogmatic about this? What are the options are there? Paul clarifies this in opening lines in Galatians. For I would have you know, my brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Verse, chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. And here comes the other gospel that is being preached at that time. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now, with advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. We've forgotten or we've never been taught about the religious climate when Jesus walked to earth. The word of God had been mixed up with traditions. 
to the point that man's traditions actually overshadowed the word of God. And the, the gospel at that point that was being preached wasn't the gospel of God, it was man's gospel. This is um, the gospel that, that Paul mentions in Galatians 1. It's also why when you read the gospel accounts, you see so often Jesus say things like this. You've heard it said. He was correcting the teachers and the scribes who held to this gospel of man instead of his gospel. This is also why he constantly redirects his disciples' focus to the Messiah of the scriptures and not the Messiah of the religious system that it built. A good example of this is found in his, uh, the conversation he had with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He asked them about the things that they had been discussing, and their answer to him was this. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and in deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Luke 24, 19 and 21. So the gospel that they were hoping in was the good news that the Savior was going to come and vanquish Rome, reestablish the Jewish system. It was works-based, focusing on rules to get into heaven. It was based on the traditions of men who had subjugated the scriptures, which is why Jesus laid condemnation on the Pharisees. The response that Jesus gave the two disciples stands in stark contrast to the gospel that had been preached and taught by the religious leaders. He said, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, ex he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The gospel that Paul had been zealous for before his conversion was not the gospel of God, a fact that he wanted to make clear. And just as then, there's a false gospel being preached within many churches today. A false Jesus being heralded. It's man-centered, based upon traditions that men have set up, dealing with felt needs and desires, centered around a Jesus that is glad to be accepted by any. Just walk an aisle. Repeat a, repeat a prayer. Raise your hand. Do any of these things and you can expect your best life now because that's what this Jesus is here for. But this is not the gospel of God. The gospel of God is found only in the Bible and is all of him, which is to say that it's all him, through him, and even to him. See, the good news of God addresses man's greatest problem, because we've all sinned against a holy, righteous, and eternally good God. And for this reason, we will all stand before him and be judged. There's no getting around this God. Nothing we can do will earn a lesser sentence. We have broken his law and will face the eternal consequences of our sin. This is why the good news of God is good news. Paul explained it this way in Romans 5, 8 through 11. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the gospel that can, found, that can be found running through the Bible. The gospel in verse 2 that Paul said was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. 
This is the gospel that was promised in Genesis 3.15 when God said that a seed from the woman would crush the serpent's head. The same one he promised that he would come from the seed or the offspring of Abraham and would bless all the nations on earth, Genesis 12.3. The same one that he promised would be a prophet like Moses to whom God said we must listen, Deuteronomy 18.5. He promised that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judah, Micah 5.2. He promised that he would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. He promised that he would have a throne, a kingdom, and a dynasty or house, starting with King David, that would last forever, 2 Samuel 7.16. He promised that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and would have possessed an everlasting kingdom, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. He promised that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, righteous and having salvation, coming with gentleness, Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. He promised that he would be pierced for our transgression and crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah 53.5. He promised that he would die among the wicked but be buried with the rich, Isaiah 53.9. He promised he would be resurrected from the grave, for God would not allow his holy one to suffer decay, Psalm 16.10. He promised that he would come again from the, clou from the clouds of heaven as the Son of Man, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And he promised that he would be the son of righteousness for all who revere him and look for his coming again, Malachi 4.2. See, Paul was writing as an authority figure to a group of Christians that he didn't know. He was writing a letter that was chock full of doctrine and theology that would guide and direct the spiritual lives of these saints. This is why he opens the letter with the credentials he knew were most important, slave, then apostle, and then the clarification of his teaching. See, just in that day, there are many people in this day vying for our attention, desiring to influence us. They're desiring to change the way that we think about God, trying to deceive, if possible, the very elect of God. In that day, it was only through letters or personal appearances. Today, we have things like YouTube, Facebook, television, radio, CDs, magazines, books, and even video games. The things that we allow into our minds through our eyes and ears influence us. They demand our attention. They demand that they, and they will influence and hold authority over us. Don't think that just because religious terminology is not being used in that movie or the content of a show is, doesn't fit into what we see as religious, that there's not a, uh, they're not preaching a false gospel to us. Because there's nothing neutral in this world. It's either drawing you closer to the Lord or it's pulling you away from it. You must be diligent in determining who and what holds authority over you. What are you listening to on the radio? What songs do you have running through your head? Who do you quote in your day-to-day -day conversations? What do you know about these people? What gospel are they preaching? Paul had seen the damage done by false teaching and false gospels. He knew the heartache of shipwrecked lives because of these things. This is why he was diligent to ensure that all he influenced knew not only who he was, but more importantly, whose he was. We must not be mistaken into thinking that we can play the victim card concerning false gospels or being led astray. Paul didn't allow the Christians in Galatia this, um, nor the saints in Corinth. He held them responsible for knowing and following the truth we're going to be held responsible too. May God grant us the insight to know the truth of our salvation 
and then the wisdom and what and who we allow to have authority in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the life of your servant Paul. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this letter to the church in Rome. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word that flows from Genesis to Revelation of your amazing love and for your amazing salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, give us your wisdom that we would not be deceived. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.